Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Pinkin.com Norwich City Podcast. A little bit more of a relaxed pod at the end of a busy few days, weeks, season, months. It's been hectic, but it's been nicely bookended almost by our regular interviews with Stuart Webber and he often comes out at the end of the season and and, and has a bit of a debrief and, and gives a bit of an insight into what's coming up in the summer months ahead and uh, I'm sure you'll have seen by now that that's uh, what we were enjoying on Thursday and bringing you, to you as much of that as we could so we're going to discuss the the key points from Stuart's interviews and start turning attention to how Norwich build for the Premier League. I am Dave Freezer. We come to you as ever on Future Radio 107.8 FM. You can also watch us on the Pinkin YouTube channel if you prefer the pod in video form. Joined by Paddy Dabbitt and Connor Southwell. The three of us down were down at, at Colney on Thursday to uh, speak to Stuart. And uh, Pad, um, what did you make of it all really to, to kick off with? Um, well, you know, you, you know, it's not going to be dull. Whatever he's going to say is going to be pretty uh, headline worthy, and um, he didn't disappoint. So, plenty to get into. Plenty we've already pushed out onto the Pinkton channels. But for me, top takeaway was was his future and that of the head coach. I thought that was, and you can see the reaction on on social amongst many Norwich fans that that is Christmas come early. I think I've, I think I've seen more than one Norwich fan saying these. Potentially, obviously, it's not done and dusted yet. But the indication or the implication is that both are willing to extend their stays beyond their current contracts, which are 2022. Um, and there's many a Norwich fan already suggesting that will be the best business of the summer because they are they are where we are this at this stage. You know, two pr- t- championship titles, two promotions, the style of football. Uh, we don't need to drill down into it. We all know what the, the pillars are behind. You know, the house that Daniel and Stewart are building. You know, faith in youth. The infrastructure project at Colney, which continues apace, with as you said, Dave, we were down there yesterday. Was we saw the, uh, the beginnings of the soccer bot, the uh, three quarter of a million pound, uh, three sixty degree circular training aid. That's well in advance now uh, in terms of the, the structure. The builders are on site, uh, diggers everywhere. So, you know, all of that is basically a result of Daniel Farker and Stuart Weber coming to this club in 2017 and potentially, if they're going to extend their stay beyond this time next summer, that is uh, excellent news. So, yeah, I mean, there, there was a lot more besides, but for me, that was the that was the headline of uh, another very revealing chat from their sporting director. Certainly was. And Connor, it's been, well, it's, it's been a busy few days, of course. Uh, hopefully most of you guys listening and watching will have already um, had a look at our documentary, uh, The Way Back, which I think has already had 11,000 views on YouTube, hasn't it? And various other platforms of of course so that's been a nice element but it, the wheel never stops turning does it we've of course had the the Kenny McLean news earlier in the week which um can't be forgotten about a real a real cruel blow for a player who was well a massive part of things this season yeah Mr consistent wasn't he probably um certainly after Christmas I thought he was he was really impressive actually and um sort of listening to obviously I, I covered the Barnsley game from home didn't I you guys were, were went to Oakwell and I was watching from home and so uh was following along via I follow and had Ben Gibson sort of alongside Chris Gorham on the commentary and he was singing his praises said that he, he's probably one of the best players that he's ever played with in terms of being able to do it all and uh, and having that sort of talent so yeah, a big blow because it's it is um, it's a big thing, isn't it, for a player to go to the European Championships, particularly after the high of this season and what he's achieved with Norwich and the fact that really it happened in the final game that was pretty meaningless for, for probably both sides. But it was an innocent tackle, wasn't it? It's just one of those, I think, where he's, he's probably got his, his, his leg caught and uh, he's, he's obviously damaged his, his knee ligaments, which is a shame. But um, hopefully it doesn't take the gloss off what's been personally and for the team a very good season for Kenny McLean. And um, uh, and yeah, it's just it's just unfortunate, I think, that now he's, he's going to miss the Euros. But um, but yeah, hopefully he's back in time for the start of the Premier League because I think if he if he is, then you'd, you'd throw him into that start and mix for sure. Yeah, strange really, isn't it? That when you think Pookie and Skip both getting injuries, Gibson and Rook not that far back, Zimmerman has, has been struggling as well. And Pad, that seems like that's going to be a big thing for the club, doesn't it? That they really need to try and make sure that they're not mounting up as many injuries as they are. There's only so far you can go with that. I mean, McLean's kind of a prime example, isn't he? Because... You know, that was a powerful tackle. Um, it was, you know, the guy completely took the ball, but just the the power of it left McLean hurt. And it's very difficult to guard against that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Actually, funny enough, I, 
independently of us sort of jumping on here I, I, about an hour ago, I, I just he he's done a which is prior to that injury and the injury confirmation. But he did a little bit uh, media up in Scotland, and I, I just just sort of watched that back earlier today. And on that topic, um, because they were asking him about the injury, if you remember, he got to his knee at Stoke earlier in the season, and he feared that could be a season ender. There, he was talking about. He was in a lot of pain. The scans didn't look good, but they went and saw a specialist. And, and thankfully, um, I think he was back before Christmas, for, if memory serves me. But he was talking in terms of across the game, the, the, the escalation in injuries this season because of the demands on players. Essentially, they did, as we all know, it's been almost nonstop for a year and a year and a bit um, with the nature, the skewered nature of the football calendar. And obviously, the Championship is a grueling league at the best of times, but concertina into an even tighter time frame. Um, and Norwich, I've obviously experienced that. You know, there was periods there before Christmas where they were down to, to bare bones. And obviously the injury he's got at Barnsley, you could suggest, isn't so much wear and tear or, or the, the workload element. But he did make the point in this interview that towards the end of the season, it has been a struggle and the games are starting to catch up with them because their body has had so many demands. And of course, on top of that, he's gone away and played games for Scotland and been very important in getting them to the Euros. So... The workload on these players shouldn't be underestimated. You know, we see Timu Puki now a little bit in doubt about him going off to the Euros with Finland and Ollie Skip. Um, you know, he goes back to Tottenham with a similar sort of rehab period to Kenny McLean, Lucas Rupp, Christoph Zimmerman, Ben Ben Gibson. All of these injuries, probably there is an element to a greater or lesser degree about the workload that has been put on these players. And uh, yeah, I, I would concur. It's, Terrible news for him in terms of the Euros and going off to play in a major finals for his country, but better news in, in the sense that I think he probably will be fit for the start of the season because he is. There's no doubt about it. He's an influential figure, um, almost an indispensable figure now. If you look at Norwich's depleted central midfield options, that essentially it's him and Lucas Rupp as we sit here right now. Clearly, that will be addressed Um there's no doubt about it. That is the top priority for them. I think they'll like to do one or two in that area. And of course, Stuart Webber, we've got the lineup this morning. They want to get Ollie Skip back if all the planets align. So in the context of at the minute, looking fairly depleted, then Kenny McLean's fitness becomes absolutely vital over the summer. No doubt about it. Yeah, at Oakwell, Pookie seemed to me to be moving quite well. He had a boot on his ankle but he seemed you know he wasn't uh, he was weight bearing he didn't have crutches or anything like that so um allied with what the finland coach has said that they are quite hopeful that he's going to be okay for the euros um hopefully there's not too much stress to worry about there but obviously as ever with international action as a norwich fan you're always going to be that little bit nervous about seeing um seeing the players play and 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 will then be worried if if pookie uh you know gets a kick to that ankle or something like that but that's football yeah injuries are part of football you have to deal with it I, th- I feel like maybe we all haven't quite um, appreciated the fact that next season is going to be so different, isn't it? We've just been through an, an unprecedented, hectic schedule off the back of a very minimal break between seasons. It's been a it's been a treadmill, hasn't it? And ne- next season, the just quite regularly, there are going to be seven, eight, nine day gaps between games. The Premier League is a very different feel to the Championship, isn't it, Connor? And I guess that will help as a starting point and we'll come on to sort of a, a fuller look at the squad later in the pod because we're going to discuss Stuart Webber's interview to start with. But that in itself probably means that you don't need quite a, as much of a big squad, whereas this season that has really benefited them that they had options to turn to. Yeah, and, and that's the fact that they're going back, as things stand anyway, to three substitutions rather than the five they've had uh, available to them in the FL this season. So that would that would show that maybe they probably need a, a smaller squad altogether because certainly if they carry more options, then there's going to be limited game time for quite a few of those. And you, you, you sort of speak about togetherness and stuff. If you've got players in the background knowing training every week, knowing they haven't got a possibility of getting into the matchday squad, then that can affect the standard of, of, of others around them. So... I think we will see probably a, a churn to the squad and Norwich probably coming out of this summer with a um, a smaller squad than what they have currently. I mean, it was it was quite... A, Daniel Farker's always, sort of since he arrived at Norwich, spoken about how he prefers to, to work with kind of smaller squads. But this season, we kind of saw the reverse of that because of the implications of COVID, because of all the stuff you spoke about there rightly in terms of the scheduling, in terms of the grind, uh, having that variation as well for... 
for Farker to change his options if if need be. Um, and next season, I think it is going to be probably, and, and again, Stuart Webber spoke about this yesterday, similar to what Burnley have done since they got promoted, where you have a real core group um, that you can rely upon to, to maybe help you establish yourself in the Premier League for, for two, three years. And um, I, I think there is probably a cycle now that, that they're working through in terms of we, we're seeing possibly the end. And I'm, again, we'll, we'll go sort of further to this later on, I guess, but probably the end of that first wave of, of Daniel Farker and, and, and Stuart Webber signings, Marco Stieperman, Onel Hernandez, etc. And and there is probably going to be a changing of the guards to, to an extent. We've seen that earlier what this week and we were with Teti and Vrancic as well so I think there will be a smaller squad I don't think they need like you said fewer games bigger gap between between fixtures as well free substitutes all, all of those factors probably indicate that it's not going to be as big a squad as it's been this season um, the key to it is going to be whether or not they can keep their their players fit because ultimately that will dictate whether carrying a small squad works for them or against them, I think. And if they can avoid the injuries and, and keep that continuity, something we know Daniel Farker likes a lot, then though that could be a, a real core of players that grow in the top flight. If we see what we saw two years ago and there's lots of injuries and suddenly we're seeing central midfielders playing in, in defence, then that becomes an issue, as, as we saw. So... It is a bit of a risk, I suppose, in that regard, but you can certainly see their logic given all of the sort of um, circumstances that they're about to walk into. Yeah, I, I'm probably not alone in this, but after Norwich's relegation, certainly the first few months, I didn't really pay any attention to the Premier League at all because it was so busy and so hectic. I was just totally focused on the Championship and Norwich. And I can't remember what game it was we were coming back from, Pad, but they were talking about um, that whoever was on the radio at the time had just made their third and final so, weren't they? And, and I said to you, what? They've only got three subs in the Premier League. And I just double-checked and it is three from nine. I mean, that's that's a bit odd, but given that the Championship has been able to continue, continue with five. But I can't remember what game that was. Yeah, no, I do recall that anecdote. Uh, yeah, so what's the matchday squad? Is it still 18 in the Premier League? Yeah, so they still can name nine subs. I just double-checked that because off the top of my head, I presumed it was seven. But no, still nine subs, but only three of them can come on, which is a bit odd. I, I wonder whether that will return to seven subs for next season. I haven't, I haven't seen anything on that yet. But um, no, no yeah. I'm, not, I'm not even thinking about certainly VAR. I'm going to need to clear out about a week in my diary to get to the bottom <laughs> of that. Although they're supposed to be supposedly tweaking it again, aren't they? So they'll probably Hopefully. make it even worse. Yeah, it's that there's a meeting planned, isn't it, of the Premier League clubs where they'll have the opportunity to give feedback and see where they want to tweak it. And I was reading a bit last night. We won't get too deep into VAR now because no one wants to just yet. But um, where the the little lines that they draw on the replays, apparently that isn't done in other countries. And of course, when you do that, that tends to um, wind up TV pundits and, and fans watching from home and stuff. So I, I think there are a few quite easy, delicate tweaks they can make. But anyway, let's get on to the main issue of the pod, Stuart Webber, and we'll kick off with our first clip. We've got three lined up for you from Stuart's interview, but of course the, the full thing is, is already out there. Uh, this is on his future. He stresses that internally his contract being up in 2022 as it stands isn't a big deal appreciates that outside of the club it's going to feel like a, a bigger issue but before we start discussing that fully here's what Stuart had to say on the issue himself certainly from my point of view I've you know I've always been crystal clear with Delia and Michael um that I'll never leave them in the lurch um and I wouldn't um yeah I wouldn't put the club at any risk so if in 12 months time when my contract up I need to stay a bit longer to help the club I'm open to doing that. Um, at the same time, in 12 months, if the club want me to disappear, I'll disappear as well. That, that, I, re I fully respect that. Yeah, 12 months. It's a long time in football, isn't it? Now, Stuart's just opened the door ajar a little bit there, hasn't he, Connor? And I think we all had a, a little inkling that that might be the case, just because of everything that's happened, because of the pandemic mainly, that you know, when he made that initial statement, it was literally, if I'm remembering this correctly, a few days after the win over Manchester City that we were down there talking to him. And he, he that was when he'd initially said uh, that 2022, he intended to move on to, to a new challenge. But life has been very strange since then. So, yeah, just opening the, the door a little bit that to, um, to, to maybe staying longer. But as he's always said, to be fair to them, he won't leave the club in the lurch. No, no, he won't. And, and again, this, this is quite a delicate situation. And, and I guess the, the pandemic has, has probably changed the plans a little bit because Norwich suddenly find themselves with what a 30 million plus hole in, in their finances that they didn't envisage um, two years ago. So in many ways, 
although it's a different situation, it's kind of back to where, where it was when he inherited it. So there's there's probably a degree of mess that he still feels he needs to clean up in, in order to pass it on to the next person without, uh, or maybe doing a, a duty of care in terms of passing it on to the next person rather. Maybe that's a, a better way of phrasing it. And um, I, I don't think what we'll see is him signing a fresh x-year deal i think it will just be a continuation it'll be kind of these rolling contracts that you see quite a lot in football where maybe at some point there's an actual break clause if um if if maybe they reach the the destination that he's hoping maybe a bit sooner but look it's, it's great news isn't it i think for norwich city uh, and particularly given the reaction we've seen i think that those two have been so intrinsic to what's happened here in, in the in the last four years or so and um i mean we were we were at colney yesterday the the sort of the development there at, at that site is incredible compared to to what it was like um it, well even a couple of years ago even before that premier league season and, and paddy referenced the the soccer bot going up that's the latest isn't it so it, it does feel like there's still more work to do and and i guess the the fear from from Norwich fans, as as was the case at Huddersfield, albeit in slightly different circumstances, that when Stewart departed, there was um, there was a, a regression in the club, and, and maybe they didn't expand on the project that they'd began to kind of develop. So it is a, a big change, maybe um, maybe sort of enforced because of the pandemic and and sort of the impact that's going to have on travel. He, I mean, he's. He, I think he openly said in the video he still wants to work abroad and um, Brexit, of course, might have an impact on that. So I think there are various factors into his thinking and maybe just needs a little bit more time to sort of figure things out. And we're better to do that than the club where you, you get a lot of freedom to kind of work and uh, and, and execute your ideas kind of as, as, as you wish. And one that allows you to make mistakes as well, which is quite rare in football. But obviously the the, uh, the big challenge for him is, is going to be this summer. It's going to be recruitment. It's going to be building a side to help Norwich stay in the Premier League and ultimately whether it's a success or, or a failure will, will be judged on probably his work in the next few months and um, uh, and yeah it's it's going to be I think really interesting to see what he decides to do come next year but I didn't get the impression that he was he was a man that was planning on sort of packing his bags and, and jetting off uh, next year I, I got the impression that maybe he's, he's going to stick around a bit longer than than initially he he had planned. I think I'm right in saying Bielsa's in that situation at Leeds, isn't he, where he's been basically on a one-year rolling contract. So um, if that's what it ends up moving towards, then, then so be it. But, Pad, I, I think I'm right in getting the sense from Norwich fans that everyone appreciates now, as with Fark, as we'll come on to Daniel's contract situation shortly, that these guys are going to move on at some point. Everybody does in football, don't they? And they are probably headed further up the football pyramid with the work that they've done but what did you make in terms of the messaging from Stuart in this one in terms of basically how he's dealt with this issue because we've all been wondering if this will become a simmering issue throughout the throughout the season but he's kind of taken it head on here a bit hasn't he and, and put out the flames maybe before they start um, spreading. 100% very very I thought it was a very very astute move that uh, because you can guarantee if we hadn't had that touch point with him and, and him to be so public and, and, and mapping out how he sees it, then this would have exponentially just grown as we progressed into the summer, pre-season, uh, the start of the season. And then can you imagine if we'd got to January, for example, and we were publicly at least still unclear about the futures of those two, it had just been uh, well, a bonfire by that stage. So, you know, he, he doesn't really say anything uh, without thinking about what he's saying, uh, is my take, having interviewed him very often now. So he will have probably gone into that round of media yesterday knowing the contract question was coming. That was a fairly obvious one. And, and he answered it in a way which basically takes the heat out of it completely now. You know, Daniel, as we'll get onto very shortly, that looks like that's going to get done before the actual season starts. So that will be, you know, set in stone. And then Stuart has made it clear that, you know, He's not looking for pastures new. Connor's touched on the, the the desire to work abroad and now the restraints on doing that, whether that's the pandemic currently or maybe the, the Brexit situation in terms of UK nationals working abroad. That That is is a major pincer as to why I don't think he's going to be moving abroad in 12 months. Um, and also, I mean, there was some very additional interesting stuff in that answer that he said, you know, it's not necessarily football is his next challenge. He, that he might, he talks about, the relentless nature of it, the elements of the job or the profession he doesn't enjoy. Um, we know what an F1 nutty is. Uh, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me completely if that sort of transferable skills that he would bring to any sporting organisation would take him in a completely different direction. So, you know, it's it's 
it's good to hear, but ultimately your point is proven, Dave, that um, you know, if it isn't to be next summer, it will be at some point thereafter. And it's important that the building blocks are in place, whether it's Daniel's replacement or whether it's Stuart's replacement, because as has been proven, um, we've spent the first 20 minutes of this pod basically eulogising about the work those two have done on and off the park at all levels of the football club. And if they are to move on, whether at the same time or slightly independently of each other, if the club to continue to progress within the self-sufficient model, then their replacements are a, a massive appointments for the club and they have to get those right. And uh, Stuart, as he said yesterday, as he always says, the debt he feels towards Delia and Michael ensures that he will do everything in his power to find a replacement for him when the time comes that will continue on the work that he's he's put in place so far. And, uh, you know, that holistic approach to, to what the club are doing is pervasive at every level of the business, whether it's developing young talent, whether it's the infrastructure, you know, the mid to long-term planning, that bleeds into every decision they make and, and that, that will continue to be the case with Weber and Farker. And uh, I'm sure there's a lot of Norwich fans heard that news yesterday and immediately been quite reassured because if if we hadn't heard that at some point in the near future, um, then I'm pretty sure this summer would have been Daniel Farker getting touted with clubs left, right and centre. That might still happen, but at least now we know definitively that he wants to stay. And if everything is, is OK on the contract front, which I'm sure it would be, he will stay. So at a stroke the fear that Farker won't be the man to lead him back to the Premier League is removed. And Weber, he's a man of his word. He says he's going to be here. And uh, I don't think there's any doubt he will be here for the next 12 months and probably a little bit beyond now. So that certainty, that clarity is there now. And um, I'm sure, as I say, Norwich fans will be very glad to have heard those sound bites from the sporting director. Well, let's bring Stuart back in because I don't think we can really go too much further with this this discussion without the Farker element, can we? Because they're so intrinsically tied together as they have been throughout their whole spell at Norwich. So here is what Stuart had to say, or a little bit of what Stuart had to say about Daniel's potential new contract this summer. He loves it here. Um, he loves the club here. And, and obviously we, we love him and it's uh, a real mutual respect, which is sometimes quite rare in football. Um, but I think it's genuine. I think he knows he's been backed uh, very much so in, in difficult times. And we know he's backed us very much so in difficult times. And and again, I'm sure in 10, 15 years or whatever, people will look back and go, he's probably, you know, one of the greatest managers to ever manage his club. And, and um, you know, and huge respect for that. So we'd like to extend it. He'd like to extend it. Uh, and we'll have conversations now over the summer. I think what's been important for us all is you know, this season has been so hectic, as was the end of last season, was to just get get it done, get this job done, and then almost think about other things in the summer. And now we've got some time to do that. And uh, he's enjoying some well-earned uh, downtime. And uh, I'm sure uh, we'll sort his contract out in due course. So, of course, that was the news which really, as Pat said a minute ago, got Norwich fans quite pumped up. Um, on on Thursday evening because it's very very welcome news as you head into the Premier League after promotion. Um, but it's, there's some really interesting elements I think to this, Connor. I mean, it, just to sort of play devil's advocate a little bit. For instance, Daniel signs the contract. We all know how difficult the job's going to be as a self-funded club. Um, they are basically trying to defy the odds in surviving the Premier League, let alone becoming stable and successful at that level. So that's the, the first the next stage of the journey almost. But if it doesn't work out and that COVID hole means that they do go back down or contributes at least to them going back down to the championship and they can't manage it, but Daniel has signed a new contract, you know, what what would that mean? We've seen he's link, been linked with Frankfurt and Wolfsburg in Germany already. Uh, he hasn't even signed the contract yet, but we know that he, he wants to be in the Premier League. We just heard it from the man that sort of matters. But there's a lot of really interesting elements to Farker committing his future to the club, isn't there? There is, yeah. And, and I think what it shows for me is that he's keen to to develop in terms of his his body of work rather than perhaps individual seasons. He, he's, he's keen to be seen, OK, he did this over X amount of seasons rather than, OK, he got promoted at this season, relegated this season. I think, I think there's a, a consistency that he wants in his work. He, I mean, he's spoken about the, the Jurgen Klopp and Mainz example before, hasn't he, about the fact that Klopp was relegated with them and, and, and yet still managed to get them back up and, and, and then eventually moved on to Dortmund. And, and it's kind of that... Um, progressive element in a job, I suppose, not just in terms of result by result, but year to year and actually improving the club and bringing it up with you. And, and I think that's probably how he'll view 
whether or not he's successful at, at, at Norwich. And it is interesting. And, and what we've sort of spoken about in terms of Stuart Webber is interesting because if Daniel Farker commits to three years and Stuart Webber's not looking beyond the next year and, and, and a half potentially, then there is going to be a period where perhaps Daniel Farker sort of outlives Stuart Webber at Norwich City. And what does that look like? And I think there are, there are lots of, of interesting elements and, and maybe there is part of it um, part of the reason Webber's decided to, to come out yesterday and, and sort of say that about his own future is to offer some reassurance to, to the head coach. I don't think that's sort of beyond the realm. So it, there's lots of really interesting elements to it. But I think if, if he's a, a Norwich manager, head coach for six or seven years, and in the end that leads to Premier League stability or security or, or he manages to, to keep them up, um, which is something that that no manager has achieved in, in nearly a decade now, then that that will be deemed as a success. He, he will be seen in terms of what he's done in terms of developing youth players, transforming players like Emi Buendia from one and a half million pounds into 30, potentially even 40 million pound players. I, I think that's how his work at Norwich City will, will be judged as opposed to results on the pitch. So even if Norwich City did theoretically um, get relegated next season I still think his stock would be quite high because of what he's done overall and um, you could probably again if you're him and perhaps you're walking into a job interview use those sort of circumstances say that you were sort of kind of operating with your hands behind your back to an extent use the examples of players that you've progressed show how you've kind of pushed the youth into the, in, in, in the right direction compared to where it was before you arrived so I, I think he, he strikes me as someone who wants continuity, wants um, consistency in his work rather than kind of riding on the peaks and troughs of it. So that's kind of how I view it and, and why I think this commitment is probably in terms of helping Norwich push for the next three years rather than perhaps um, sort of up and downs, if, if that makes sense. So I think he's looking at it as a, a three-year kind of job rather than maybe a, a, we need to desperately stay up in the Premier League this time around. Otherwise, I'm, I'm a failure. I, I don't think it's quite as as crystal clear as that. And, and I, I use the example of if you finish, what, 17th in, in the Premier League, that's a success. If you finish 18th, that's a failure. That's a that's quite a a big kind of difference. I think that, that isn't really a, a way to judge success for me. So, even if Norwich did go down, I, I still think his stock would be fairly high because of, of what he's achieved, if that makes sense. So um, I, I don't think in terms of results on the pitch, it'll have a massive bearing in terms of what he decides to do, be it next year or, or be it two years down the line. Yeah, now it should go without saying that, of, of course, we don't want that to happen. From our point of view, we want Norwich to go and live the fairy tale next year. We want to go and win the Premier League title and do a Leicester. That makes our jobs brilliant, doesn't it? So um, I'm just playing devil's advocate here, really, Pad, and, and trying to sort of really uh, look at the other side of the coin on it. But the way that Weber and Farker have spoken, um, they are... It's not often that people get to ride off into the sunset and leave a football club on a high, is it? You know, I think, say, Alex Ferguson managed to time it quite well when he left Man United, didn't he? I suppose Paul Lambert would probably say that he left Norwich at a good point with them 12th in the league, although it was quite an acrimonious um, exit. We've just seen Alex Tete and Mario Vrancic sort of do it, but, you know, Tete was always signed up as a, as a squad player for the season, wasn't he? And, and Vrancic didn't really play a great deal in the second half of the season. So those two, they set their stall out quite early on this, didn't they, that they hoped but they do have ambitions. Everyone has ambitions within the game and they would like to leave the club in a better state than they found it. But that isn't an easy thing to actually achieve and to time it correctly. So if things didn't go well next year, do you think that there could be something like sort of relegation clauses in, in a Farker contract, something along those lines? Oh, there'll definitely be break clauses. No, there's no two ways about it. Not so much maybe for the, the relegation promotion element, but Stewart's situation. You know, I could see because they are almost joined at the hip. And, and that in itself is rare to, to have that, certainly in English football, almost unique, I would suggest, um, to have that type of relationship um, where, I mean, Stuart said himself, they're very different people, but yet in terms of working relationship, it just it just works. You know, they, they know their spheres of influence and, uh, and they complement each other perfectly. So, and ultimately, let's not forget that Daniel Farker is at this club because he was Stuart Webber's hand-picked choice to be the head coach, to embark on this brave new world um, so I would think Daniel would want some reassurance around Stuart's future um, and not in the, as Connor rightly says, in terms of a, I'm here for X amount of years, but just possibly if Stuart at some undefined point 
beyond 22 decided it, he had to go or it was time to go, um, that Daniel would have an opportunity then to review his situation. I think that's probably going to be um, set in stone into that contract that Daniel signs. And, and that's understandable because, you know, as we've discussed here in this segment, ultimately, Daniel Farker at Norwich City, all he's ever known is Stuart Webber. And in terms of, you know, that, that crucial support pillar that he needs to go and do his job and the trust that he feels he has to go and do the job the way he wants to do it, if that's removed when Stuart Webber goes, even if it was to be an internal candidate who he might actually know, he's still it's still not Stuart Webber. So that's got to inject quite a degree of certainty into a head coach's mindset, I would think. So, yeah, I think there's no two ways about it that ultimately their paths are pretty intertwined and, and I think that will continue moving forward and um, that that will have a bigger bearing on the situation with those two guys than it than, than it does in terms of what Norwich do or don't do in the Premier League, I think. Yeah, and they will move on eventually. Everyone does. That's football. So um, we've got to be ready for it and we've got to be realistic about it. But um, yeah, hopefully they can get things right. Um, Beyond, this is just another interesting element of it all, though, Connor. Maybe I'm looking at it with yellow and green glasses a bit too much, but I don't think there's many clubs in the country at the moment where there's quite such an interesting story, such an interesting project. I think you could probably look at Brentford as the closest other example of a club who are trying to sort of do things the right way without spending loads of money that they don't have. Barnsley to an extent, although I think they do have a bit of money behind them, don't they? The, the Moneyball characters and stuff who were brought in a, a few years ago. So, um, well, Brentford do have a bit of money behind them as well, don't they, with um, with Matthew Benham? But I try to sort of do things the right way. But this element with Farker and Weber, it makes what we're about to cover this summer and then next season just incredibly intriguing at every turn. Yeah, and, and strip it all back. And I think they there's a, a really interesting concept that is probably alien to 95% of English football, which is at face value, results don't really matter. It's about the processes and the performances. And if, if you get those right, then the results will inevitably follow. And that's kind of the, the, the mantra that they've had over the last few years. And that's an incredibly brave statement, I think, to make in a, in a competitive environment um, when ultimately you're, you're playing people. And, and to a lot of people, the results do matter. And they are. Um, it, it does sort of dictate people's moods for the weekend or whatever. So to strip that back and to try and say, OK, if the result is the end goal, how do we get there um, consistently rather than than maybe just hoping to, to put a team out of the pitch and, and win on a consistent basis? How do we make that a bit more sustainable? And um, that's a really interesting concept. And, and I think when you look at it like that, that's that's probably what makes this Norwich idea probably slightly different to the major, vast majority of clubs who don't have that outlook and they just strive to win no matter what. It doesn't matter how you do it or what team you put out or who you play even. You just need to get three points. And, and the fact that Daniel Farkham, we spoke about kind of his job security and and it's a, it, is a, it is a good point because if Norwich lose their opening seven games next season, we know there's going to be no speculation in terms of his future. Whereas I, I bet the other 19 clubs, that won't be the case. And it's because of the the kind of structure they have in, in place and, and belief they have in that. And I think the, the fact that that could have got tested probably last summer and, and didn't was was probably a testament to to how strong they believe in it. That really was the test. And that's what makes this interesting because now it's about, okay, they've proven that they've cracked it at the championship level. Can they now go and do it a step higher? Have they, uh, people will say, learnt the lessons, but um, it, can they do maybe what they what they did two years ago better on a bigger scale with more resource or whatever? I, I think that's what's going to make the, the summer and, and next season so interesting is this sort of tweaked Daniel Farker system that we've seen this year in terms of a bit more pragmatic, a bit more defensive resolve. Is that transferable in the Premier League? Does that result in Premier League survival? So there's lots of questions and... In many ways, I think if you're an observer of, of Norwich City, not even a fan particularly, but even if you're watching the Norwich City project in the round, and I'm sure there'll be lots of people probably in the EFL watching Norwich City with interest, because if they can prove that it works, then that's when people will look at it and go, OK, maybe we need to move similar to something that Norwich City have done in terms of you don't need to spend vast amounts of money. You can promote from within. You can sign players relatively cheap and flip almost their value on, on its head. So... It's a really interesting year for me because I, I think if, if as you said, Dave, playing devil's advocate, if they do go down, then I think it, there will be a lot of reflections in terms of whether this type of project and whether self-sustainable ownership 
can work in the Premier League or whether there's a ceiling to it. So there's probably a lot of philosophy about the, the season coming up. But uh, as we said, ultimately, it will be dictated on whether they stay up or not, which is kind of a contrast to what we said about results. So it's um, it's going to be really fascinating in terms of, A, how they approach the transfer market and how they try to rectify what they learned two years ago. But then equally, the results that they get in the Premier League and, and, and whether we see a, a, a drastic kind of sea change from what we saw two years ago. And, um, and and if so, how how will that work? So, yeah, I think sitting here, what, six weeks before the start of pre-season, I, I'm pretty excited to see how it all unfolds, I must be honest. But think about the love that they got from the national media for, what was it, being the worst bottom team ever in the Premier League. If they actually play that kind of football and manage to stay up, the amount of praise that Weber and Farker and those players are going to get is going to be absolutely off the scale because they are going to be bucking the trend and, um, Stuart Weber did speak a little bit about looking at the way Burnley did things, but of course we know that it's a very different style of play. So, um, right, let's move our attentions onto transfers then and bring you our third and final clip uh, from Stuart Weber for now, which is teeing up uh, the transfer business, which um, might not be, um, it might be a bit of a slow start to the summer, but there's certainly going to be plenty happening. We're going in with more resource this time. It's still more resource by our standards as opposed to by other standards. So are we going to be signing... A thirty million pound striker, definitely, definitely not. Um, but will we spend more money? Yes. Uh, will we potentially need to generate some more as well? Well, yeah, that might be that we sell uh, one of the, you know, one of our, let's say, more in demand players uh, to help fund even a bigger sort of transfer spend. But that's about being open and honest and realistic about that because we'd only sell one of them if it was right for us. We weren't not going to sell one just to build up a transfer fund because maybe the better value is in keeping these players right um, but the fact is we have to we have to improve we have to be we have to have players who can come and impact it on day one and that doesn't necessarily mean a, a group of 28 year olds um, but certainly it's got to be players who we think can uh, can improve our starting 11 and you know and give Daniel some really nice uh, some nice problems so a fairly familiar story pad uh, Norwich fans will be pretty used to this kind of story um even if Norwich were to spend 50 60 million this summer which short of selling all the crown jewels they're not going to they would still probably be spending less than every one of their Premier League rivals so as we were just talking about before that clip Norwich are doing things differently here aren't they so what's what's your read on 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 Stuart, how Stuart's teed everything up it's no longer crown jewels now Dave it's in demand players that's the new buzz <laughs> phrase for the summer and, and we all know that both phrases refer to the same three players Aaron's Wendy Cantwell um, I mean you could say that's the first public admission from essentially the, the, the figurehead that one or more will depart this summer but I think we've all probably felt um, one or more would depart this summer anyway just because of the natural evolution of as, he, as Stuart said again yesterday the journeys of these players Max Aarons, possibly if he'd have pushed it harder, could have gone last summer, but um, stayed on the ship um, as a club. They decided Barcelona and a loan inquiry with no obligation wasn't for them. Um, but there is no doubt him of the three for me will be in demand to a tangible extent, not endless speculation with no, as Stuart said yesterday, the phone getting picked up to him. But um, he looks for me like a man who's probably going to go on and get himself a very decent move this summer. And that will probably be the one that Stuart's referring to there that will then allow them to be a bit more ambitious in terms of the type of player, the values they can afford this summer. Because if that doesn't happen, I think the implication in, in that little segment was that they're going to have to be a bit more circumspect, not to the degree they were two seasons ago, where they were really up against it financially. And, and it was the summer of Amadou on loan and Patrick Roberts and Ralph Farman, you know, I think it showed in that, that set of accounts, total obligations in terms of loan fees and salaries amounted to about six million for the business they did that summer. It'll be well north of that, even if they don't sell any of those three players. But the reality is they're now balancing plates. They're dealing with, as we've discussed, 30 million plus COVID hole now. There's still no clarity around supporters in terms of a full house arriving back at Car Road in August. That has to be factored in as well because the, you know, the situation stands that Norwich is one of Mon Norwich's main revenue drivers outside of the TV money. Probably the main driver outside the TV money is what they get through the gate from a twenty-seven thousand home crowd, twenty-five thousand home fans, twenty-two thousand of those season ticket holders. 
So if there's no clarity at this stage of the summer about when they can allow a full house back at Carrow Road, that allied to the hole they've already got to fill in terms of the pandemic and the financial aspect of it dictates clearly, and Stuart's mapped it out there, very clear, black and white, everybody can see it, that they will have to sell one or more of those three players if they want to do the type of business they need to do uh, or that they want to do, should I say. So, you know, but that said, we didn't quite hear it in that clip, but, but Stuart made it quite clear that they will only be going for club record deals. If any club wants to pick up the phone and talk anything less than that, even in a pandemic-infected market, in terms of the money that might be available, that isn't going to happen. Um, so I think I would take that to be still, like Ben Godfrey, like James Madison, albeit Madison was a necessity in terms of the finances at that stage. Ben Godfrey is a better example. Ben, ben Godfrey only went because it suited Norwich. As much as it suited Ben Godfrey, maybe, it only suited Norwich in terms of the financial package that Everton could put down and take that mantra and apply it to any of those three players this summer. If it doesn't make sense financially for Norwich, it won't happen. But for me, that's that's the clearest signal yet that, you know, one or more of those will leave. And of course, you know, that then prompts more questions about Norwich's viability to stay in the champ in the in the division. Because if you're losing a an Aaron's a Buendia account, well, by definition, Daniel's squad is weaker than it would be if you kept them. So it's a balancing act, but ultimately at the heart of all of this, they're a self-sufficient club. They can only continue to do what they're doing if they can generate funds. And one of those avenues, alas, has been, will continue to be, as long as these two are at the helm, selling their best assets when the time is right, when it suits all parties. And and it clearly looks like this summer, in one or two of, of those cases, that's where we're going to get to, that position. Yeah, and that, of course, can't be forgotten that they've already committed to about 15 million to bring in Gibson and Yanoulis. Uh, you're talking about a Greek international um, and, and Gibson, when he was fit, was in England squads, wasn't he? So um, they are, I think there's pretty much universal agreement, good investments and they were good signings. Stuart and the recruitment team now, they've proved that they can do the championship. They nailed it really last summer, didn't they? Um, now it's where they've got to prove that they can set up a Premier League squad, but that's not going to be easy with the resources they've got to play with. But let's let's stay on the the in-demand trio, triumvirate, whatever you want to call them, Connor. Um, I think with Max, most people have um, kind of come to the... They've dealt with that, haven't they? That he's probably, at the age he is and the amount he's achieved already in three seasons, he's ready to go and take a big step up. So um, I think most people have already dealt with that. And as Paz just teed up there... If they can make that, they would have to replace him, I think, as we'll come on to a, a, a bit later. But that will give them just a little bit more wriggle room to spend with. But Campwell and Buendia, there's two interesting dynamics to both of them, I think. A, obviously, Campwell's contract situation, having two years left on his deal. So his value will start depreciating unless he has one heck of a season in the Premier League and, you know, scores 10, 15 goals or something. Um, and with Buendia, there's the impact of COVID, as, as Pads mentioned as well. And is anyone going to be able to spend a 40 million ish fee on someone like Emmy Buendia, who undoubtedly way too good for the championship, but didn't totally convince in the Premier League? Yeah, I think there's there's two. My, my feeling on Buendia is split, to be honest. I think part of me thinks looking at his, his data this year, the metrics, the highlights, the headlines that he's got. One team is is going to push themselves out, I think, and probably probably make the risk uh, to, to sign him because I think he he's at this stage now where he's probably too good for a club not to commit to equally if you're uh, a top club in England let's let's say Manchester United theoretically um, and you're looking to sign someone from a newly promoted championship team in terms of messaging that's really tough in many ways you're better to sign someone who hasn't been playing at Real Madrid than someone who's been playing very well at Norwich just because of, in terms of, I guess it depends on how your club kind of does things, but in terms of commercial stuff, and obviously we know Manchester United in particular are, are big on that, then then that's kind of the way you, you edge it. But if if any recruitment team in the Premier League has their head screwed on, really, you, you would imagine that they're aware of Emi Buendia and, and his talent. Equally, if I'm probably a, a Premier League recruitment team and, and, Norwich are asking, let's say, in excess of £30 million pounds for, for him, then you're going to want to see a probably another top flight season in a better team to see if he can do it again. I mean, let's, let's not forget, although his creative numbers were very good in the Premier League, he scored one goal. So 
that is kind of a, a mark against him. I think we have seen improvement in his temperament. And, and so I, I think he's a difficult one to judge. My feeling is, honestly, I, I think one team will take a will, will take a gamble on him. And I think he'll go on to obviously be the, the fantastic player that, that everyone here knows he is. And if that happens, then there'll probably be other teams looking around and, and probably asking themselves why they didn't make that decision sooner. Um but yeah, I think I, as as again as Stuart said, these these clubs are owned by billionaires. If if they want to pay the the fees, they will find them. I think pandemic or, or no pandemic, Todd is slightly different. I think um, although his goal scoring was very good in the Premier League, uh, there wasn't the same in terms of creative numbers that Buendia had. Uh, I kind of said last year that if you merged the two together, then you'd have had an ideal Premier League player. I think in terms of sort of goal returns and uh, and creative numbers. Equally, he's he's really kicked on since Christmas in terms of his game. He's a better athlete now, I think, compared to, to two years ago. Um, and I think there's a, a real desire there. So Norwich are probably in a position this summer with with Todd where it's you either cash in now or, or you renew his contract. I think that's kind of the, the trade-off. So um, because like you said, Dave, as soon, as soon as you don't do that, you kind of, the, the asset gets devalued to an extent. So it's 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 a really difficult, interesting situation. Obviously, he's got a year left with an option, hasn't he? So um, we'd expect that to get triggered, I think, irrespective, and, unless he signs a new deal. Um, and again, with him, my problem is where does where does Todd go if he, if he leaves Norwich? Um, because I think he is a player that fits in with a certain style of play that wants to play football. Leeds is probably, uh, for me, uh, an obvious one in terms of a, a team that would maybe attract him in terms of the, the type of player he is. Part of me wonders whether he'd be better suited going abroad after Norwich, um, because I think it's going to be very difficult to find a team outside of the top six um, that maybe are, are capable of playing the style of football that he needs. So I think there's lots of dynamics into it. But um, if you ask me here and now with the whole summer ahead, I would probably expect Todd Campwell to be an Ori City player come the start of the season. And Emi Buendia, I'd say, is is probably really in the balance. I think I'm probably with you on Todd. And I, th- I think that's an interesting shout about going abroad. I think when you look at what Jaden Sancho's done over there, I, I could see Todd fitting into the Bundesliga and doing really well and and maybe kicking on and, and really flourishing. But that that's an interesting side of things. With Buendia... I think La Liga is one that we can't overlook. You know, Atletico Madrid, I think they have been linked and and he, you could see him fitting in there. I'd love to see him go and play for Pep at Man City if he was to be leaving because I think Pep would really just finish him off and make him such a top player. But I just don't think Man City will need him, although they've got so many good players. I, I think you probably, again, Bielsa, I mean, he plays similar st- uh, style to Guardiola, doesn't he? So, you could see Buendia really, really flourishing under him if, if Leeds wanted to splash out a bit of money. But that's that, that's if somebody's going to make it, I think it might be a bit of a surprise one with Emmy and, and maybe a Villa or a Leeds or an Arsenal. And he's got to go to that level um, because those clubs do have money. Um, but yeah, what's your sort of take on, on just briefly on that pad before we start working our way through the squad? Yeah, I wouldn't add too much more. I think I think basically we've, we've dissected all three and where they are in their careers and what type of interest there might be. And I think we get to a point where Aaron's is the most of and ready of the three, Aaron, sorry, to, to, to move on for, for the fees that they could command. And, and and yeah, we've discussed it. Stuart said quite rightly that there might be some elements of the transfer market that reflect the, the, the pandemic and the financial hit. But he feels at the elite end, um, you will still see the big clubs willing to commit to the big fees and and if that is the case then uh look look back at last summer look at the clubs he was linked to as we know with these things not all of those emerged into tangible interest in fact it was only barcelona who really put the put the phone call into stuart weber but the scale of club that man is being linked with he's now 12 months further down the line he's played for england's under 21s at the euros didn't go well for the team but you know that's the level of player he's in in and around now in terms of England representation. He's got another championship title, another promotion. And, uh, you know, I think he will be no longer a Norwich player by the end of the summer, ultimately. But um, but it is really interesting. And uh, and ultimately, if, if they lose Max Aarons and it allowed them financially to keep Wendy and Cantwell, I think, if that's the equation, I think most Norwich fans would take that, wouldn't they? Because obviously those two, if they can, for reasons you boys have just discussed, continue to show that creative productivity, not just potential in the Premier League, on a consistent basis, 
then Norwich's chances of staying up and booking the odds are uh, increased dramatically, I would suggest, because that's the problem they... Well, you could say they had the problem at one end of the pitch and the other, but I think ultimately they didn't score enough goals or create enough in the second part of that Premier League season. If they could do that this time around, they're in with a fighting chance. So I think ultimately all roads lead to a Max Aaron's exit, but hopefully I'd concur with you boys, those two still in the building come the opening day of the uh, Premier League season. We shall see. It's going to be very interesting. Right, we're going to close out the pod. Just going to go through position by position, really. Um, we'll skip over the keepers, really, because that's quite straightforward. We all know Tim Krull's the number one. He signed a new contract at Christmas. Um, Stuart said yesterday that um, Oyan Nealand, they're in talks. But as we all know, he's, uh, what, 30 now. He was a Norway international. If someone comes in for him and, and offers him a number one shirt, then you'd have thought there might be a chance he can move on. But realistically we're talking about competition and cover for Tim Krull there aren't we Michael McGovern's already signed his new deal Daniel Barden if he goes out on loan you've got Archie Mayer Aston Oxbroughs and gets forgotten about because he's had such a nasty injury you presume he would have a loan but they've got quite a few young talented keepers on the books so um you've got your fourth choice there which whatever one it may be John McCracken uh, Joe Rose Sam Blair they've got a lot of keepers on the books haven't they so let's go with right back. Well, let's go full back first then, Connor, um, shall we say. Um, on the right, you've got Max Aarons, Barley Mumba, Sam Byram, um, who it sounds like they're hopeful that he's going to be back in the mix in pre-season, but we'll see. And on the left, obviously, you knew this as you start. Again, Byram in contention and and maybe Sam McCallum. So so what's your read on the full back situation? And, and, and do you think that that is an area they, they need to bring someone in for? Uh, yeah, if if they sell if they sell Aaron's definitely in terms of right back, I think the the big one for me it'll probably all hinges on Sam Byram because if as you said there that he's 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 back um, kind of uh, available for selection at the start of pre season has a good pre season campaign then we know from two years ago I mean he kept Jamal Lewis out of the side at left back for for a spell didn't he and uh, was was very good actually in in some of the games that we saw before he kind of limped off against against Liverpool and uh, he was he was at Conley yesterday wasn't he when, he when we were there sort of doing individual work so hopefully that's a good sign and if they can get him sort of up to scratch and fit and keep him fit which I guess is, is maybe the, the biggest issue then they've got a very good player there and and, and that probably would mean they don't really need to do anything extra because as as we've said he can play left back he can play right back he would provide cover there i think if Aaron's did go they'd probably need a frontline right back option that they could kind of i don't want to say rely on because that's that's probably a, a bit harsh but you, you, you get what i mean maybe a a more consistent maybe more quality option there um you knew this offers that on the left mumba is is probably just a little bit um, off it at the minute, but in, in terms of long term, he's the guy, isn't he? I think, and, and, and we've seen glimpses of that this season. So, for me, it hinges on Max Aaron staying and, and Sam Byron being fit. If if both of those things happen, then I don't think they they need any any extras in in, in the fullback areas, to be honest. And then Sam McCallum, I can see getting another loan to the Championship, and I, I don't think he'll be short of offers. Bad, maybe better qualified to speak about his performances at Coventry, but um, it sounds like he's he's done pretty well by all accounts. So I'm sure he'll have um, he'll have plenty of suitors at, at that level. Hopefully, maybe to a, a side. Sorry, Pad, with with genuine promotion ambitions. Maybe, maybe that's the next step for him. So. Um, so, yeah, I, I think um, that's probably how I see the, the fullback areas, to be honest. Yeah, that's an interesting example of how Weber always has to have in mind that he is planning for the worst, isn't he? The, the club financially and in football terms. So just take that as an example. If Byron recovers fitness, McCallum goes out and plays at the top end of the championship. If, which hopefully, of course, they won't, Norwich come back down, you've then got a ready-made player to go into that championship squad, haven't you? So that's just one example of how it all works. Um, but, yeah, interesting. My, my my one thought with Byram is, even if he is recovered, even if he has a full pre-season, I still don't think you can just expect that he will be available all season. I still think there's got to be another man um, ready to step in in case things don't work for him. But, of course, every single Norwich City fan agrees that, um, or, or hopes that Sam Byram is back next season. Let's move on to centre back pad. Um, so we've got Hanley, Gibson, Zimmerman, Omabamadeli, who we're I think we're all expecting to be part of it. Um, and then Sorensen can do a job there. Fanawo and Bashiri have had sort of mixed loan spells away from the club, haven't they? So, do you think we're well? I suppose from what we've heard from Stuart yesterday, that one centre back is looking pretty likely to be on the shopping list, isn't it? Definitely on the shopping list, yeah, no two ways about it. Um, and we're talking about cover and leaving themselves short, and it was graphically illustrated two seasons ago. 
this part of the cycle. And and okay, hindsight is a wonderful thing, but you know, no Zimmerman, no closer. Grant Hanley then got injured early part of that season, um, and you left basically putting square pegs in round holes. Essentially, I'll never forget. You know. Bournemouth away and it's Alex Tete and Ibrahim Amadou at centre-back in the Premier League. Uh, is it any wonder? And Stuart did reference that yesterday. You know, if they get to that scenario again, they will go down again because you will get found out in the Premier League if you have to do mend and make do, essentially, for a prolonged period of time. Maybe you get away with it for one game or two games. But So for those scarring experiences alone, uh, they won't want to leave themselves short. Omabama Daly clearly now is seen as the shining light of that young batch of centre-backs you talked about. I think it, without giving too much away, I think we could probably assume that Bashiri and Fameo won't be part of the Premier League or possibly part of Norwich his longer-term future. And um, as a result, if Omabama Daly is is your uh, fourth sort of centre-back in the mix, um, then you probably do need to bring another one in because ultimately, you know, Zimmerman, Gibson, Hanley, two of those I think we, we would all expect to be the, the frontline options. But if injury and then suspension intervenes, then uh, you don't really want to be exposing Omabama Daly for a prolonged period in the Premier League. So, yeah, there's no doubt about it. They've, they've been linked with a lot of centre-backs already, uh, particularly the lad at Celtic. I doubt it will be him, but um, they will be looking to make an addition in that area. And uh, and obviously we've forgotten Tim Closer, who is still technically under contract, but by all accounts would want to continue at Basel, although he's had a very mixed season there on, on loan, I think. But there is a buy option there. But certainly, put a line from him, he's not in the equation moving forward. So, ultimately, yeah, um, with a fair wind, there will be a, a senior frontline centre-back joining that party over the summer. Yeah, I just think after the injury crisis of 2019-20, they cannot at any point allow themselves to be in that situation. And knowing football, they'll probably get themselves all prepared for it. And then Gibson and Hanley will be absolutely fine all season. They won't need it. And they'll assign someone for a load of money who doesn't get the games. Or, you know, that would be very, very typical of football, wouldn't it? Um, but it, it, close is a good example. So the, vi- the vibe we get, those players who are out of contention at the moment, your Lightning, Dermot's Tribals, it seems like those doors are closed and that they're unlikely to come back into things. So uh, I think we can probably forget them in terms of this conversation. Uh, So attacking midfield, then Connor, and then we'll finish with strikers for pad. Um, This is one, because we've already teed it up really, haven't we, with Cantwell and Buendia, that bit of uncertainty about whether they will still be here or not. Or certainly there's a a chance, but if you've got Buendia, Cantwell, Kieran Dow, Steeperman, Pueheta, Hernandez, Josh Martin, there's quite a few bodies there already for them to, you know, try and work that into the options that they need. Yeah, and uh, and as we sit here, only one that I would be absolutely certain that is going to be in the Premier League with them next season, which is probably Kieran Dow. So yeah. it's um it's is a really interesting area of the pitch, and um, I wrote about this Pinkin.com um, earlier to or well, it was yesterday, wasn't it? And um, I, I think in terms of obviously Buendia and Cantwell we've we've spoken about in terms of their their situations um and then of course there's the others and Marco Steepman who's had a very difficult year in terms of his health and injuries and obviously in the back of everyone's mind will be perhaps that failure to step up two years ago and show that he was at the level um consistently anyway uh Hernandez probably the same lots of injuries uh, and whatnot but both are really good characters around the group. So I don't think you'd be terribly upset if they're both in the building come kick off on August the 4th or whenever it is, because um, everyone knows the type of, of lads they are. They're not going to sort of be throwing toys out of the pram or whatever. Josh Martin, I think he's at a stage where he probably needs a loan, doesn't he, to, to go and get some consistent football. And then Plachetta's a really interesting one because he's, he's not really, I would argue, fit in with with what Daniel Farker wants to do I think he's, he's he, he still looks incredibly raw so my my inkling is they'd probably o- be open on both fronts if there was a loan offer or, or, or an opportunity to maybe break it there so yeah at this stage I'd only say a real certainty that Kieran Dowell is going to be in the building but realistically there'll be two or three others as well um, plus any additions they make and and obviously I think that they'll probably look maybe to to get a winger that can probably do a job as a as a striker as well, if absolutely need be. So that's that's kind of how I see it situ- uh, playing out. But yeah, I think there's there's the potential for a lot of change, particularly in, in in this area of the pitch, because of the options. And it kind of links in with what I said earlier in terms of 
the cycle and Stephen and, and Hernandez maybe being at the end of their sort of respective Norwich City journeys and uh, and uh, and whatnot. But um, but yeah, we shall see. This is this is the area where players cost money as well, isn't it? So that's worth bearing in mind. It's it's going to be incredibly difficult. Um, in terms of their price range to maybe recruit options, as, as we mentioned earlier, that um, are, are possibly better than what they have. But that's that's the task of the recruitment team, isn't it? Yeah. Josh Martin's a very talented player as well. So similar to what I said about McCallum earlier, if, well, and as we teed up, we've only been able to make three subs in games, that game time probably isn't going to be there for him. So he's going to be better served by playing football. And he's someone again, who hopefully not, but maybe even if Norwich stayed up, if he'd gone away and had a good loan season, he could then come back in because we all can see he's got the ability and the talent. So that'd be interesting. Uh, Pojeta and Hernandez for me just seems like you keep one of. And for me, I keep O'Neill because he's capable of more than we saw this season. And Pojeta, similarly, if you sent him on loan to, say, Belgium or Holland or somewhere like that, he could go and do well. Or maybe the German second division, he could go and back get back to that sort of form that he was showing in Poland. So, um yeah, I'd be keeping O'Neill of the two of them. And Kieran Dowler, I wrote a column a couple of weeks ago saying that I think that there's definitely a Premier League player there. And the thing that sticks in my mind is how well he played coming in off the right when Buendia was unavailable at Forest that night because his wife had given or his partner had given birth the night before um, and he looked good. So he could be a potential Buendia replacement. I, I think Kieran Dowler could have a pretty major role to play for for Norwich next season, so we shall see. And to bring it to a close, uh, the forwards, Pad, um, Puki, Ida, Jordan Hugill, and then the youngsters at the moment of Soto and Omatoy, who are probably looking at loans again. Um, how do you see that going? I, I've already gone on the record of saying I think they need another one, um, but do you think there will be another one? <laughs> it doesn't seem that way. I mean, Connor touched on it there where he said a winger who can play striker, um, and that seems to be where the, the, the headspace is at the minute. Now, that will surprise a good few because we've just talked about the defensive parallels and trying to avoid the mistakes, essentially, of not having enough stocks in that area two seasons ago. Well, that, to me, was what happened in the central forward areas. You know, there was so much reliance on Puki and wasn't he excellent in the opening months of the season, Premier League Player of the Year, that very first month, first player since Epinokoku for Norwich to score a top-flight hat-trick. Um, but he was never the same player again after he, uh, he damaged his foot at Turner Leicester in the December of that season and uh, as a result Norwich were never the same again as an attacking force Dermich was a gamble that failed spectacularly uh, he will not be part of the uh, the way ahead uh, that is for sure and um, it seems that they are still going to be reliant heavily on Pukki and, and obviously he's you know he's going into the Euros potentially with a big question mark over his fitness and uh, that would be a concern for me that you know, even if he gets through that tournament in terms of fitness, there's so many miles on the clock. You know, he's literally not stopped now for two or three years. Um, and that has to catch up with a player at some point when you get past 30. So I wouldn't say it's a gamble, but it's certainly rolling the dice on a high stakes, uh, you know, call. If you're, if you're not now looking for an out and out striker, I mean, the, the feeling is maybe because of the, the substitutions we've talked about liberally that you don't, what is the point, given Daniel is such a fan of Timu Puki and he's going to be the frontline striker and he only plays one up top in terms of established forward, what is the point in spending a lot of money when they don't have a lot of money to spend? Because as Connor rightly says, top-end players, they go for the biggest money and strikers particularly, strikers who have proven and score goals in the Premier League, you're talking telephone numbers and Norwich simply don't have that amount of finance. Um, so it, it, I can see the economics of it, why it makes sense, but... You know, ultimately, Timu Puki, heaven forbid, gets himself injured in the first few weeks. Then what? It looks like at the moment, Adam Eder is, is is the one they're pinning a lot of hopes on. They really feel, and we saw a glimpse of it on the final day of a season, which for him personally was very down more than up. Uh, you know, injuries and periods out of, the, out of the team, rehabbing and then coronavirus diagnosis as well. But they really feel he potentially could emerge as, as the one to take some of the pressure off Timu. It doesn't seem at this stage, and we've talked about Hernandez and Poeta and, and that ilk of player. I think you can probably file Jordan Hugel in that area area of, of that, where they're thinking this summer. Um, if there was potential offers and it made sense, you're thinking maybe championship level, then I think there could be a deal to be done there. And again, that isn't 100% a, a reflection on him and his inability to maybe step up into the Premier League. It might also be the finances in play that they obviously get 
a transfer fee. They can reinvest those wages as well and to allow them to bring in maybe options who they feel are better suited to the Premier League. So, you know, on the face of it, if you are willing to let Jordan Hugel go, you're not willing to bring in another striker and you're really willing to put a lot of eggs in the team with basket with Adam Eder in reserve, then I think there might be a few Norwich fans who are a little bit concerned about that. But ultimately, you know, Weber and Farker are trying to do something with finite resources and maybe they look at other areas of the squad and they feel that needs more attention, particularly the central midfield. We didn't really touch on that in this little segment, but ultimately they really need to focus on that area now because if Ollie Skip isn't coming back, Alex Tete won't be coming back and you have Kenny McLean and Lucas Rupp currently injured and the experience of two seasons ago where that was an area of the pitch they were sadly lacking in terms of the physical requirements that's clearly the priority this summer, ultimately, is central midfield. So if that's the priority and you only have a limited amount of resource available, probably you're going to have to take a little element of gamble in the forward areas. But there's no doubt about it. There would be unease, I think, in many quarters if they go into the new season with essentially Pukki and Ida. Right. Well, I hope that was all fascinating for for everyone in in the way we've laid it out there I just thought that would be helpful to actually go through the squad because just gives an indication of Stuart Webber basically if you grew up playing championship manager or football manager that is his job isn't it (laughs) he sits there all day and does it in real life and we've just touched on it all there really it's the tip of the iceberg and that's why we'll be able to keep the pod going throughout this summer I'm sure that we won't be short of things to talk about there will be various elements of this shifting all the time through until I think the transfer window closes for the Premier League purchases at the end of August and then I think there's talk of there being another domestic window isn't there for a couple of weeks in September so they could still do business with championship clubs but um, it would mean Premier League play- clubs wouldn't be able to buy anymore but we'll come on to all that in the summer I think um, I think that'll do for this week thank you very much boys for your thoughts um, I hope that um Gave a little bit more insight into uh, the really interesting interviews that Stuart Webber gave on Thursday. And we'll keep bringing you all the uh, main lines from that. Of course, Pinkin.com, EDP and Evening News. I did want to mention as well, uh, it was in Thursday's papers. There we go. It was a 32-page supplement reviewing the season. Um, You can um, get hold of them on our website if you missed it uh, as well. But um, we've, uh, I think we've just about managed it. It's tomorrow as well, isn't it? Connor, uh, Saturday is the People's Pinkin. That's right. Sorry, just get myself un- unmuted. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, I have to double check quickly how many pages it is. 16 page, uh, yeah, People's Pinkin. So basically, one that we've allowed the supporters to fill with their pictures and their words of uh, what's been a remarkable season. Obviously, they've been they've been absent. So, um, yeah, it's a, a nice thing to do. It's been, been nice to kind of look through all the pictures and read all the messages. So, um, so yeah, hopefully, people enjoy that. I actually ventured out and got a paper yesterday, which we don't actually get to see the physical paper too much these days, unless we make the effort, do we? But, you know, I persuaded myself to go and get some fish and chips and pick up a <laughs> pick up a paper while I was there. <laughs> um, so, yes, um, do keep an eye on everything that's going on. There's loads coming your way. And uh, as we've mentioned a couple of times, that documentary, The Way Back, the Pink and YouTube channel, and the poem read by Stephen Fry to those we've missed. Um, make sure you have a look at them if you haven't already. But for now, thanks very much for listening to the pod. We come to you in association with Future Radio 107.8 FM and we'll catch up with you very soon.